2 Samuel 6, verse one. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord God Almighty, who's enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. These names, man, they're getting me. For three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, which I think this is kind of funny, take six steps and then they sacrifice cows, just kind of, I just picture the Raiders of the Lost Ark whenever he's stepping out in faith, just has eyes closed, stepping out. I don't know, it was funny to me, but... After they'd taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire household of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we've, we've sung, we've read, and we're about to hear about your holiness and goodness this morning. And God, I pray that that wouldn't just be a mental concept for us, but it would be a reality that we experience in our hearts. I pray that as we leave our services this morning, that we would be able to put into practice the experience of your goodness in our life. You've called a, a people to yourself. We were once not a people, but now we are a people. We're your family. We're thankful for that. We pray that you would hold dear to us, never let us go. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So this passage can be a little weighty, so let's start off with a little fun, amen? So anybody ever made a list of like things that are most commonly bringing embarrassment in your life? Just me? All right, so I did, I put a list together so you can walk through it with me a little bit. I've got four things, all right? The first one is this. One of the most common ways that I embarrass myself in public is tripping. I trip often and very, very often. One of my first experiences in ministry is when I was trying to jump onto a stage in front of a room of teenagers, about 200, about probably the height of this stage, tried to hop up, my leg 
caught on the actual edge of it and I slammed face first right on to the stage. Still, the youth, the people that were in that youth ministry, when I see them, they still bring it up. So kind of my reputation with them. Um, man, yeah, walking downstairs, I'll often miss a step and my legs just buckle and fall. Walking down the street, trip on a crack and fall, fall down in front of people pretty often. Maybe it's just me. Y'all are laughing at me. That's okay. That's kind of the purpose of this, all right? So the second one, and I'm just going to step into this, getting caught with my fly down, all right? I think this is more of a fear than it is a reality for me. So whenever I was growing up, um, I had a friend. He, he had a he, good voice, and so he often would sing in front of groups, crowds. He did one in, in front of a 1,000 people, all right? A 1,000 people. He's a high schooler singing, and he's on a stool, sitting down, leg propped up, and his fly is down, all right? Greatest fear for me, I, I have a check before I get up on stage, anytime on a Sunday morning to make sure my fly is up and I'm not gonna be that guy. Because anytime I remember this guy, I automatically think of that moment. So maybe it's more of a fear than it is like a common embarrassing moment, but that is what it is. Third one, when I'm in public and someone is waving in a distance, and I think they're waving at me, but they're actually waving at someone behind me. Man alive. It makes my, my face blush. Super, super embarrassing. Happens to me frequently. So next time you're in public, just wave and then act like you're waving at somebody else behind me and you'll put me in a really fun situation. So the, third, the fourth one, and this isn't maybe common, but maybe you can relate with me, is it's embarrassing whenever someone makes an example of you, isn't it? My track high school coach could have made a living out of this, all right? So almost weekly, he would make an example out of one of us. There was about 50 of us that were on the track team, cross-country team, make fun of us, make, make an example out of us for whatever purpose or issue that was going on. And so I was the brunt end of that one time. Uh, really, really thankful that he did that. Um, he, you know, it was a junior year. I bounced between sports, playing different sports in high school, did basketball, cross country and track. And so obviously I don't have the frame or the built for, of a basketball player. And there was one day that he was trying to get some of us to just focus specifically on track and cross country. And I was the example that he was using. So I, I loved Michael Jordan growing up. My dad took me to a game whenever I was 16. It's like my 16th birthday little getaway. And I came back. I had a t-shirt that my dad got me, Michael Jordan on it. It was a white t-shirt. And so my, my track coach started calling me White Michael Jordan. Um, obviously in jest, not in reality, because I don't have his game. And then he basically told me in front of my entire team that I was peeing into the wind by going and playing basketball on our high school team. So he made an example of me and it worked. I ended up quitting basketball and I focused on cross country and track for my last two years in high school. But man, it's embarrassing when that happens, isn't it? Whether you're at work or you have an experience, it sticks with you. Well, this morning, the passage that we're looking at I believe that David learns a valuable lesson about God and his holiness, and that it's at his own expense. The lesson that we see from this passage is this, that our God, the living God, is holy. And because our God is holy, we too are to be holy. And I think you can see this through three movements in this passage. The first one is this, the holiness of God. You see that in the verse, first seven verses 
of this passage. Second one, our struggle with God's holiness. I think if we're really honest, we struggle with the holiness of our God. You see that in the middle of this passage. And then the third one, the pathway to personal holiness, which you'll see in verses 12 through 15. So let's look at the holiness of God, the first seven verses in this passage. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from the ark there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. So already you kind of get a sense of holiness. There's something different about this God. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. So what's going on here? The Ark of the Covenant has been at a, in Abinadab's possession for about 20 years. King Saul was before King David, didn't have a lot of interest in the presence of God. He's more concerned about his own kingship. And so the house, the house of Abinadab basically had in storage the Ark of the Covenant of God. And this was a symbol of God's presence. So King David, a lot more concerned about the presence of God. And he realizes the opportunity that's before him here. And he makes this huge procession of the Ark of God a big deal. He's trying to bring in the Ark of God to the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And he, he goes all out. He didn't hold back. There's no stops that are held back. He, he puts it all forward. So 30,000 chosen men, a marching band, tons of instruments. I mean, he goes all out. And by comparison, all right, so if we're trying to think about just how big this is, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade last year, 2016, one of the most viewed parades in all of the world, over a million, like I think I saw 40 million people viewed in last year to see this. There were only 8,000 people in the parade. 8,000 people, all right? Huge, huge, just vast. Lots of talent that are walking down. David chooses 30,000 men, marching bands that are the procession of walking the Ark of the Covenant of God. It's a worshipful experience. And if you know anything about 2 Samuel, if you've been reading along, if you've been watching, gazing into the life of David, you know that there's a lot of good stuff that's going on. And so the next event that happens should come as quite a surprise to us. It should catch us off guard. Verse six, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. So here's, here's kind of the story, the backstory, all right? King Saul and his son, Jonathan, have died. First Samuel 24, we looked at how David spared King Saul's life. First Samuel 24, King Saul's life was taken. David was avenged, but also was his good friend, Jonathan. And at the very beginning of Second Samuel, we see this, fights for the kingship of Israel. And ultimately, David is enthroned as the king of Israel, just as God has promised. David is given a lot of victory in battle. He's gone to fight the Philistines. He's gone to fight other people. And when all odds seemed against him, literally, when there are, there are stories in here that you read and you, 
You cannot imagine how David would win these battles, but God divinely intervenes and works and orchestrates and gives David victorious battles over the Philistines. And his name is made great. Foreign countries know of David. He's highly respected and revered. I mean, this is the king of Israel, God's appointed king, the man after God's own heart. David is trying to usher in this new era of worship of God, where God's presence, his symbolic presence of the Ark of the Covenant is in the holy city for corporate worship for all of Israel. And as the procession is making its way to Jerusalem, the cart teeters, the oxen stumbles, Uzzah reaches out, he touches the Ark of the Covenant and God strikes him down dead. I mean, imagine if you're David and this is first couple of years, maybe, if not less than that, being king over Israel and the loss of face that you would have as king. You, you bring this worshipful experience trying to draw attention to the living God. And what happens is under your watch, a man is struck dead. It looks like God is opposing David as king. So what, what in the world? Why? Why is this what happens? What in the world is going on? Well, I believe God is communicating to David and ultimately to us that the holiness of God demands the reverence, the respect of man. The word holy literally means to be set apart. And I, I think that can be a little bit confusing of language. So there's a, a scene from a movie that has often played in my mind whenever I've tried to make sense of the holiness of God or just holiness in general. It's from the movie, Remember the Titans. Anybody seen Remember the Titans? Great movie, right? So here, here's kind of the, the backup for that. It occurs in the 60s. Um, the schools are being uh, brought back together again, was once racially divided, being brought back together under the, the law of the land. And there's a football team, has a lot of talent on it, um, but there's the cultural wars that are going on with the, the race battles that are happening. There's an African-American coach that takes over the team and they go off to training camp for a couple of weeks. And there's just a lot of strife that's happening between the team. And so the coach wakes them up one, one morning really early before the sun is up. They go for this long run and they come to this field. And if you know anything about the movie, there's an epic speech that happens. And here's the speech. And it's uh, Denzel Washington. So imagine Denzel Washington. I don't have as cool of a voice as he does, but you can picture that here. This is where they fought the battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field fighting the same fight that we are still fighting among ourselves today. This green field right here, painted red, red, bubbling with the blood of young boys, smoke and hot lead pouring through their bodies. Listen to their souls, men. You can just hear his voice, right? You listen and you take a lesson from the dead. We don't come together right now, right now on this hallowed ground. We too will be destroyed just like they were. I think I get a sense for the holiness of God because you, you get the set apartness of this field in this moment. So the scene, it sets it up so well. The sun is rising, the music is playing, the field is covered with the thickness of fog. It 
this hallowed ground, you can feel the history of this field, Gettysburg, the priority of the moment, the urgency. These guys gotta come together if they're gonna do anything with the talent that they have. The field is set apart. There's none other like it. It's sacred. So it is with our God. Our God is holy. What sets him apart from you and me and from other gods is his purity. Our God is holy, pure. He's without sin. He's not without blemish. He's completely perfect. Absolutely perfect. Habakkuk 1.13 um, says of God's holiness, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And we get a picture, a glimpse of that holiness put on display in this story. There's actually two wrongs that are in this story, not just one. The first one is actually the wrong of David. Numbers 4.15 says this, when the camp is ready to move, so the Israelite people up to this point have historically been a people on the move. Anytime they worshiped, they had a tent of artifacts. They had to pick that up and they had to move it with them. So when the camp is ready to move, the Kohathites, a select people within the Levite clan, are to come to do the carrying, but they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. So the two problems here, first is the mode of transportation, and that's the sin of David. And the second is Uzzah's touching the ark, the irreverent act. So the mode of transportation, what's the big deal, all right? So Numbers 4.15 says that the Levite clan is to come and carry the ark of the covenant. But what we see in the details of David putting this huge procession together is that he orders for a new cart to be built, the ark to be set onto the cart, to be pulled by oxen, and then you have Ohio and Uzzah that are ushering that cart into the city of Jerusalem. Doesn't seem like a big deal, but if you know the background to the story of the Ark of the Covenant, it's a huge, huge deal. So the very beginning, 1 Samuel, the Philistines have, have conquered the Israelites in battle. They take the Ark of the Covenant as a sign, a symbol, a seal of their dominance over the Israelites. And God causes mass chaos for the Philistines as they have in possession the Ark of the Covenant. And so what they do, it's, it's caused such distress amongst them that they, they give it back. They give it back to the Israelites. They wipe their hands clean of it. And the way that they do that is they build a new cart. They put the Ark of the Covenant onto the cart that's led by two cows that goes back into Israel. And this was symbolic of the way that most other nations would bring their gods before their people. They would put their idols on a cart and they would go between towns within their country so that people could observe this foreign God. The problem with David and the way that he's transporting the Ark of the Covenant is he's modeling the way that other countries bring themselves to worship their, their gods. And there's a difference between the God of Israel and foreign gods. He alone is holy. He alone is pure. And he is not to be revered like other countries. He's to be revered the way that he has instructed. That's the first one. The second one is the irreverent act of Uzzah. So Numbers 4.15, even the Levites, 
the Kohathites, whenever they come and they carry that ark, they are not to touch it. They can't. They can't touch it. It's clear that if they do, they will die. And that's exactly what we see. The reason behind that is because the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man cannot be merged together. Whenever those two meet, it's like a huge collision. One has to consume the other. And God's holiness is so big, so good, so pure, that when it comes into the contact of man, it completely consumes the sinful man. And Uzzah is struck down, he's killed right on the spot. The message that God is sending to us about his holiness is this, is that our sin is serious. Our sins are the cause of the separation between us and God. He's basically telling us, I am holy and you're sinful. Just as water and fire, just as a base and an acid cannot exist together, but one has to consume the other. So your sin and my holiness cannot dwell together. One has to consume the other. That's exactly what happens here. The fault is on David. He's the one that has put the details of this whole procession together because he orders the ark to be transported on the cart. Uzzah's death is on his hands. Now, when we come into passages like this, I believe it can cause some weirdness inside of us. The best way that I can try to put it is that I I think it causes some sense of struggle. We, We either draw near to this God, this holy God, or we flee. We run from his presence. And what I love about this passage is its honesty. We get a picture into the struggle that we feel internally through the life of David. We get a window into our own soul. David responds in two ways. First, he's angry with God. And then secondly, he's fearful of the living God. It's the struggle that you and I experience internally put on display through the life of David. We see that 2 Samuel verse eight. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means the Lord's breakout on Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So David's angry. The literal translation here is this, that David is bursting with anger. The idea is a a balloon being filled with helium to the point where it's about to burst because it cannot contain the anger that it possesses. David is furious with God. He's been promised to be king. He's been put in that position. He's tried to bring this worshipful experience as the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the city of Jerusalem. And God treats him like he does Uzzah. Brings shame, loss of face furious. And secondly, he's fearful of God. If you look throughout the Old Testament, typically you can look at the fear of the Lord 
and it's viewed in a positive term. It's reverence, it's respect. But there are times that fear is not viewed in a positive sense. And I believe this is one of them. And I, you can get that sense by the posture that David has towards God. In a positive sense, the fear of the Lord, the reverence draws you to the presence of God. But whenever you are in the negative aspect of fear, it causes you to flee. We see that 2 Samuel 6, 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. So David doesn't press into the holiness of God. He flees as if he's fleeing an enemy or an adversary. I think it's a, a window into our own soul when we come across texts like this. Now, we, we don't know the thoughts that are going on in David's heads. We know his emotions, we, but we don't know his thoughts. But when you and I struggle with wrestle with our doubts, our concerns with God, I, I think there are ways that we can kind of read into what David might've been experiencing. There's two questions. I, I think these have been prevalent since the first sin in the Garden of Eden that we've all wrestled with. And the first one is this. Is God really who he claims to be? Is God who he really claims to be? If you grew up in church or if you've read your Bible, oftentimes we hear about how God is a loving, a merciful, a patient God. But then we come up to texts like this, where God swiftly works his judgment against people like Uzzah. And it seems like there's a conflict. What's going on? Are you, are you loving? Are you merciful? Are you patient? Or are you swift in judgment like you were with Uzzah? We don't like the sense that God can serve as judge over us. It works against our very nature. We are the free people. No one holds anything over us. Is God who he really says he is? Does he love us or is he against us? That's the first. I think the second one is God really for me. Is God really on my side? Does he really want what's best for me? Is he working for me or against me? Is he on my side? Man, this is a question I struggle with on the regular. I mean, today I struggle with this question. This, this past year for my family has been difficult when it comes to um, just medic, like medical visits and expenses that have piled up. So we've been to the doctor a lot, had a couple of visits to the hospital and our insurance has decided not to cover some of those visits. So some of those bills have stacked up pretty heavily. And I've spent nights on my couch, sleepless, burning with anger, burning with anger, partly because I think my insurance company is dumb. <laughs> Secondly, I've just been angry with God. My, my family works really, really hard to try to live within our means. And I wrestle with the question, God, are you for me? I feel like I'm doing everything right. We live within our budget. We're tithing regularly. We're, we're doing everything right. Are you for me? I struggle, I struggle with the holiness of God. 
but good news creeps in. We find it in the pursuit of holiness, the pathway towards personal holiness. We sang about it already, but I think it's worth saying again, the anger of God lasts a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. If you look at the instances where God moves like he does with Uzzah compared to the longevity of God's kindness and is bent towards grace in our life, they're few and far between. What we see with the life of David is that God's presence, yes, it demands our reverence, but it ultimately means blessing for those of us that have come to Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 12. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So notice why David returns for the ark. It's a blessing. The last picture we have of David is he's leaving the ark at Obed-Edom's house, leaving with anger and fear. Ultimately, he get, we get the sense that he views the presence of God as a curse more than it is a blessing. But God does something that three months, he blesses the household of Obed-Edom. Everything, literally everything that they did, God blessed. They flourished. And it's almost as if God is enticing David back to himself. The motive, the heart that you had in bringing the ark was good, but you have to show me the reverence, the holiness that my life demands. And so David does, he comes back. He comes back for the blessing of God. Now for us, the blessing of God isn't consumed in the symbol of the Ark of the Covenant. The blessing is now imaged in the son of Jesus Christ. God comes down to earth and puts on human flesh. He walks amongst blemished, sinful people like you and me. He lives perfectly. He's holy. He's pure. He's set apart. Yet in his purity and his perfection, he goes to the cross. While you and I are Uzzah, deserving the swift judgment of God, he's been long suffering with us. And instead of us being consumed by the presence and holiness of God, Jesus goes to the cross to be consumed in our place. He takes our sin. He takes our suffering. He takes our blemishes to the cross. And whenever he does that and he, he's resurrected from the grave three days later, we get a picture of what our life will look like with God. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. He has owned our sin, yet he's in the presence of God and he's not being destroyed. When we come to Jesus, when we trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his purity, his perfection, his holiness. He comes and he makes his home inside of you and me. We no longer have to go to a city of David to worship our God. We can worship wherever we want because he's made his home inside of you and me. We experience 
blessing. Deep, deep blessing. I believe we see the pathway to personal holiness through the life of David here. Look with me in verse 13 through 15. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. I believe David demonstrates the pathway to holiness because I, I believe he repents. Look with me at verse 13. Verse 13 says this, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord. Something happened in David's life during that three-month time frame where he, he had to come to grips with the holiness of God in his life. He recognized, he confronted how he had wronged God by ordering the, the, the new cart to be the mode of transportation for the Ark of the Covenant. And he, he owns it and he steps into it. And what we see here is repentance. He follows the instruction that God has laid before him that the Ark is to be carried into the presence of Jerusalem. He repents. And we don't get this killjoy idea of what repentance looks like here either. It's not this, I have to give up all the good things in my life and step into really hard, difficult things. No, David is rejoicing. You could make arguments here that the procession is now even larger. He's worshiping the living God. The aim of the Christian life, the pathway to personal holiness, isn't perfection, it's repentance. There's a Christian author that puts it in a way that I I just think is so compelling. He says this, progress is not only what God expects from me, but what he allows from me. So yes, whenever we come to Jesus, he makes us holy. But the reality is, is that we are all still spiritual Humpty Dumpties and God is putting our life back together again. And he doesn't demand that we have our life put back together when we come to him. That's his job. He's the one that's slowly putting our our lives back together again. Our job is repentance. Now, when we think on repentance, I think we often experience or think of remorse or sorrow. And in a sense, that's true and that's right. But repentance is much more than that. It's a lifestyle. It's a means by which we live the Christian life. So here's some contrast, all right? Remorse versus repentance or regret versus repentance. Regret is short-lived. Repentance is long-term, a lifestyle. Regret feels bad about past sins. I can never forgive myself for what I did. Repentance turns away from past sins and clings to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Regret distresses over consequences, the loss of face because of the wrongs that you've done. While repentance is distraught by your actions, there's a concern for the state of your heart, the motives by which you've acted. Regret makes vague resolutions. It doesn't intend to keep the promises that it makes, but repentance makes specific restitution. It initiates reconciliation where you've wronged somebody else. 
Regret deals with the symptoms of sin, trying to put a band-aid over the, the hurt that you've caused maybe in your own life or somebody else, but repentance deals with the disease of sin. We are trying to put to death the things that are offensive to God and to other people in your life. And ultimately, remorse leads to death and a miserable life. But repentance leads to true, genuine life and joy. Peter in Acts 3, 19, as he's standing and he's preaching the gospel, says this, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. And notice what he says here, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. There's something about repentance. Yes, it hurts. It's difficult. It brings about humility in your life. But the promise is this, that whenever we repent and that God wipes away our sin, that when we step into it, there's refreshing that comes from the Lord. There's a, there's a pastor at a conference um, preached a sermon on, uh, on prayer that I went to about three years ago. His name is Scotty Smith. And he had a mentor in his life, meant a great deal to him. He had passed by that time. And he was, is partly a, a talk on prayer and partly a remembering Jack Miller's life. This is the man that meant a lot to him. And he said some things about Jack Miller's life that really stood out to me. But the thing that maybe stood out to me the most was this. Scotty Smith would say that whenever he examined or watched Jack Miller's life, the thing that stood out about him was the joy that he found in repentance. And he said that the reason that he found such joy, it literally brought a, a smile to his face whenever he would go and he would own up to his sin to brothers or sisters that he had wronged or whenever he walked in on him, whenever he was in prayer, repenting of his sin to God, the joy, the, the smile that would be on his face. He says it came from a deep conviction that the Bible and what it says is true. The Bible tells us that whenever one man repents, that God is throwing a massive party before the angels in heaven because one man, one man has decided to turn and repent, move from fleeing from the presence of God, drawing near to the presence of God. That's what I want for my life. Yeah. Stepping into a repentant lifestyle is hard. It's difficult. It's often humbling. But the promise is that there's refreshment for your soul. I want that for our church. Imagine a reputation of a group of people that were known by their progress, by their repentance, and not by the, the mask that they tried to put on, acting as if their life was put together. It's enticing. Your role in personal holiness is not to try to have your life put together. That is God's role. Your role is repentance. And God allows it. Let's pray.